Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. This week, Kim Schumacher is back on the show. After Pascal Juncker, we continue discussing climate change and sustainability topics in this new episode. Kim has been one of our favorite guests on the program. But before listening to this piece, we highly recommend tuning into the episode that we recorded with Kim last year. On this occasion, Kim returns to walk us through the recent climate change initiatives, not only in Luxembourg, but also worldwide. And in this very insightful, yet highly provocative conversation, we discussed the conclusions of the widely covered IPCC report, released in August by the United Nations, and what it means for governments globally. Intriguingly, we draw a parallel with the COVID-19 crisis and what the handling of the climate change situation would require to steer the Mother Earth ship in the right direction. We also talk about the latest projects that Kim has been involved in, especially in the sustainable finance sector, where good progress is now being made. Indeed, our listeners will be pleased to learn that a leading Luxembourg bank has now invited scientists like him to the decision-making table when it comes to integrating climate-related issues into their proposition. But now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Kim Schumacher, lecturer in sustainable finance and ESG at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. Thank you, Kim, for taking your time to speak to us again. It's been almost a year since we last spoke last summer during the COVID crisis. Um, and it's great to have you back here and uh, talking to us again about the ESG and many things you've been up to. Well, it's great to be back. And uh, I hope uh, similar to uh, COVID, uh, that uh, things will look up uh, with uh, ESG as well. Kim, what have you been up to lately? Because I know last year when we spoke, the, there were lots of things that happened during the COVID-19 crisis, during, of course, there were like, uh, you know, worldwide events that uh, were caused by climate change, as we saw already last year. But um, before we actually dive into all those interesting topics and, and intriguing questions, what's the latest on your side? Well, uh, interestingly, uh, I'm probably one of the few people or one of the one of the privileged people. COVID affected me to a relatively small degree in the sense that uh, my workload did not decrease, but actually slightly increased due to all the uh, like yeah, things I've been up to, uh, all the activities. So as I as I reduced my 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 uh, uh, my travel, which might actually in the end not be a bad thing or like a blessing in disguise from from my carbon footprint uh, or my personal carbon footprint, but by switching over to Zoom uh, or like yeah like virtual meetings and virtual conferences uh, and and virtual seminars that allowed me like yeah to reach out to a lot of people that otherwise uh, like yeah time would have just been like yeah been eaten up by a lot of travel. So and that has allowed me like yeah to basically extend. Uh, the scope, but also like just the extent of my activities in the in the uh, areas of sustainability, sustainable finance, and ESG, uh, by uh, working with people with stakeholders from all over the world, literally from almost every continent, and uh, by by setting up like yeah, just a variety of activities, speak from teaching to research uh, to uh, working with industry stakeholders uh, from the finance and the corporate sectors. So. Uh, yeah, just a lot of things, and I hope I can like yeah go more into detail today. But uh, definitely, I expanded the number of uh, like activities and projects uh, that I've been like yeah involved in or since we last spoke. 
So uh, looking forward to tell you more about that. For all the listeners who haven't listened to the previous episodes we recorded with you, um, you are actually based in Japan, in Tokyo. Yes. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit what happened during 2020 and obviously the first part of 2021 with COVID? Um, what was your feeling? How did it go uh, down over there um, throughout the year? Well, I think uh, Japan is an interesting case in terms of like uh, how to manage like these challenges. And I think that there's probably a word that in the in the climate age or the climate action age, we will encounter again, like yeah, a lot of times is, is the word unprecedented, where just uh, like yeah, we face situations that uh, due to a variety of, of reasons and always in a specific regional context, like problems or issues that, that we never faced before. And, and Japan here, uh, one of the criticisms was that the, the initial rollout was extremely, extremely so. And one of the reasons was so since since we last spoke uh, was that uh, the Olympic Games were postponed from 2020 into 2021 into from uh, uh, the, the last week of July and the two first weeks of uh, August. Uh, so they were held this year. And uh, one of the criticisms was that at the beginning of 2021, uh, the government favored or wanted to do everything to to save the Olympics at all cost, and that of course went into first uh, like yeah, uh, not necessarily downplaying the, the the risks from COVID, but rather trying to minimize uh, like yeah any disruptions through COVID, and uh, that that would have had uh, like sometimes had the opposite uh, effect in that it actually made things matters worse. Uh, another thing was that they were extremely slow to approve the COVID vaccine and then to roll out uh, the COVID vaccination effort. Uh, now they're, they're, they're gaining pace or like, yeah, it's, 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 it's getting uh, basically aligning slowly with, with uh, like, yeah, what, what is the, the rates in Europe and North America in terms of vaccination. But uh, yeah, it started very slow. Uh, it led to a lot of issues. And, uh, but on the other side, one also needs to mention that the amount of casualties or fatalities related to COVID uh, were apparently much lower. Of course, uh, there's, there's the caveat that the testing was also much, much lower than, for example, in Luxembourg, where they had a large-scale testing effort, and uh, it, it's a large contrast to that. But uh, yeah, that, that was really a situation that that caused a lot of disruption. For example, in, in as, you, as you said, I'm, an, I'm a lecturer here in, in Tokyo, uh, and uh, it basically led to me almost not having seen a classroom from inside for uh, almost a year and a half. So uh, the last time I was actually set foot in a classroom was in February 2020. So uh, that that was a serious disruption, which could have been like, yeah, probably been managed better. But uh, as they say, hindsight is always 2020, which means we're always smarter afterwards. So I think it was not easy for any politician, but uh, those were some of the uh, the things that could have gone better, but uh, yeah, now we are after the Olympics, so now we should get to an, uh, a rate or vaccination rate that is in line with with other developed uh, countries. But actually, moving back to the uh, actual core of the topics and the actual reason why we were sitting together today again from a distance, I, I remember last year when we when we had the discussion around the same time. You were, as I mentioned in the introduction, you were already mentioning or talking about the fires that happened in the Amazon 
And of course, you know, Australia that was burning and there was horrific pictures that we could see, you know, circulating in the media. And in a similar fashion, sadly enough, the this year has been a bit more extreme, but it's just been impacting all, you know, the whole world, you know, with uh, West Western uh, America just uh, going through those uh, high temperatures and, and also, also those very uh, dramatic pictures that we've seen in Europe. Also, Luxembourg was impacted a few weeks back about all those uh, with all those floods uh, ravaging a, a vast majority of the, the, of the country. So essentially what, I, what I'm trying to say is that um, people actually see visuals. They, you know, it's not only happening in other places in the world, it's also happening in their own countries and, and it's difficult not to be sensitive to that. And also this IPCC, so Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, sort of championed by the UN, came out at the same time and, and also provided further evidence that humans uh, are at the source of, of this climate change acceleration, so to speak. My question to you, Kim, is, and also for the benefit of our audience, is can you please describe the remit of this particular paper? And uh, if, you, if you've got a minute, then also I'll be very interested in, in understanding or knowing what were for you the most striking parts of that report. Could be positive, or of course, negative. Thank you very much for the question, and uh, yeah, especially for those who uh, might not be familiar with the with this particular report. Uh, so, uh, what what Adrian mentioned is that the reporting question is the the assessment report by the IPCC by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and uh, the IPCC publishes like major reports every five to six years. So this is the sixth assessment report. The first one has been published, uh, I think, in 1991, uh, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, it might be 1990 or 1991, but uh, that was when the first report was published. So what these reports try to achieve is they try to sort of like, yeah, represent the consensus among scientists or the scientific community around what are the causes, what are the impacts, and what are the solutions to anthropogenic climate change. So climate change that is human-induced, so generated in large parts through human activity. And um, another word is like, yeah, what we try to prevent because climate change could actually be like, yeah, either going up or going down. What we often uh, talk about is global warming. So actually the the, uh, increase in atmospheric temperatures uh, and, and one number that is often thrown around is like the two degree centigrade increase uh, that that the Paris Agreement from 2015 actually sort of like yeah championed that 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 should be the maximum that that humans should uh, limit global warming to because otherwise if we go beyond that the uh, the the consequences might be significant and the thing is with this year's assessment report so the assessment report is is subdivided again as I said for example the scientific evidence then. The, the, the general regional impacts and then also like yeah the solutions and then like more topical what are the economic impacts things like that and this one was the one by working group one which is the one who collects all the scientific evidence that climate change is in fact happening and also what are the causes of it and what are already it describes also already some some impacts to uh, to some extent and so this is really the, the, the combined scientific knowledge of, of the world's leading scientists uh, who you are usually nominated by, by, by uh, all the world's countries or membership countries of the United Nations. So really, there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of expertise that goes into those reports. 
And what they do is they basically just go and try to find all, they usually look at, at almost all of the available research and then sift through it, look at it, and then come up with the conclusions that, uh, so for example, if, if uh, a lot of researchers find, for example, changes in the Arctic, uh, in the Arctic regions, then that would be taken as evidence if there's a large consensus around that the Arctic is actually being significantly impacted or affected by climate change. So that is what the assessment report is, is trying to do. And this year's assessment report is sort of the first one that says unambiguously that climate change is caused by humans. So previous iterations, one would think that it already said that, I thought so. No, it was always like, yeah, there's high certainty that climate change or global warming are caused by humans. This year's edition is the first one that says in unambiguous terms, no, climate change is without any like yeah, shred of a doubt caused by humans or by caused by human activity. And the, the thing is, why is that significant? Because the IPC report needs to be approved by every single country on this planet, because again, it's, it's championed by the United Nations. And these types of reports usually work with, uh, uh, with uniformity. So they need to be uh, approved by general consensus. So that means all the member nations of the United Nations, they are now in agreement that climate change is caused by human activities. The extent sometimes varies, but that is why this report is very significant. And uh, just to give you something like, yeah, recently to see, to, to illustrate a little bit of the change that is happening and, and the word unprecedented is that yesterday or I think two days ago, there was a report that for the first time ever in human history or in recorded human history, it was raining on the highest peak of Greenland, of the Greenland ice sheet. It was raining instead of uh, snowing. So that was for the first time ever in human recorded history that that happened. So that is what the assessment report sort of like yeah, is illustrating is that these deep transformations that have been occurring in such a short amount of time ever since humanity started to industrialize. And that is very significant. So what is the central message of the report is literally without any doubt, humans are the main reason why the current climate change is happening, why it is changing so fast, and why it is resulting primarily in warming, and in a warming that can be destabilizing to human existence. That is literally what the report said. You know, Kim, as we, as we heard many times, especially throughout the COVID period, people will say, or Joe Public will say, you know, they are sick and tired of experts telling them what to do. So as you just mentioned, that governments around the world uh, signed off on this report. What should governments now do in order to explain to people that their lifestyle has to change? Because in my opinion, the report is out. We are doomed unless we change something, do a 180 degree change of the way we live. But if no one tells the people to do that, or explains to them in a rational way of changing their lifestyle. We could all agree here, yourself, Adrian and I, that nothing is really changing, although the time is ticking. Would you agree? 
I, I definitely agree with that statement. The time is ticking. And, and what I would actually also say, and that is also what the report more or less like, yeah, clearly stated is that time is running out. That time is literally, we have already so locked in so many like greenhouse gas emissions in our atmosphere that currently we're at roughly 1.2 degrees warming uh, versus pre-industrial times already. So we, we're already at 1.2. And, and um, some, some of your listeners might know, so the, the Paris Climate Agreement mentioned we sh- humanity should aspire to limit warming to 1.5. But that is really the ideal case scenario the best case scenario so if we're already at 1.2 and some of the emissions that, that that are already in the atmosphere have not even generated or like unfolded all of their their warming potential if you will then i think it is safe to say that we're already pretty much locked in 1.5 in a few years so uh, the report also said we might achieve that not achieve but we might reach that already by by 2030 so 10 years earlier than originally forecast so and and that is that is one of the things that the the, the knowledge is there so you really as you correctly say but what what makes it so difficult and where i do i do not really know what currently what the right solutions are uh and where in the end we can discuss a little bit what what our potential approaches but one of the things that that makes it hard to imagine how we as humanity can address this extremely complex and, and existential threat is, is 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 COVID. How did we handle the COVID crisis? And the thing is, I, I would assume pretty bad because despite overwhelming knowledge and despite, for example, large hard evidence that the, the vaccines, for example, they are not perfect. They will not prevent all of the infections, but they, for example, prevent a serious uh, illness, like uh, hospitalizations, things like that. But you will always have a very vocal and, and, and quite significant uh, minority that, that thinks like, yeah, either the scientists are lying or the government is lying or there's some some dark forces at hand that that have some like yeah, hidden agendas to get people vaccinated and and the same is as someone who is, has been in this space there has been a lot of like yeah climate what we call climate denialism so basically just saying this this climate change has nothing to do with human activity that is just like yeah natural fluctuations that have been happening over millions and thousands of years that's nothing to worry about. And the, the underlying message is basically, I don't want to change my, my lifestyle right now. I do not want to change anything that I have. It, it comes down to lifestyle. And that is something that is extremely hard for, for someone to communicate, for politicians as well. Because we saw, for example, again, examples in, in France or very recently in, in, in Switzerland where there was a referendum on, on carbon taxation. So the question was basically, would you accept a higher taxation of certain fossil fuel-based products, which would drive up inflation and increase prices? But uh, the, the thing was a, a majority, a small majority, though, re- rejected the increase in taxation 
in order to pay for climate-related measures. Or in, in France, we saw with the yellow vests that as soon as you do that, there's always a backlash. Or in Australia, for example, there was a huge backlash against the introduction on a levy for plastic bags at supermarkets. And some supermarkets temporarily actually reversed course and, 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 and reversed again to, to hand out free plastic bags. So it always has to do with convenience and, and what, what would change in my life that I got already used to. And that is extremely hard to communicate. And if we are very serious about it, it would lead to fundamental changes in our lives that go beyond just changing out light bulbs or uh, like, yeah, giving up straws, plastic straws. So, and, and, and I think that is something that is extremely hard also for politicians, extremely hard to implement. So that is one of the reasons why having, using an economic approach like via sustainable finance or via investing might be one of the ways to bring people on board to see if you if we become more resilient as a society and if we do prepare and if also we do mitigate our carbon emissions there's actually an economic benefit to it and i think that is probably one of the few angles that can be communicated because if there's an economic self-interest then it might function covid has shown that is not always the case sometimes people act very irrationally but that does not mean they act irrationally out of like bad faith but I also, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I understand from a personal point, if you feel that your lifestyle is in danger or is seriously threatened, of course, there will be pushback. But if you can combine like sustainability with also economic incentives, I think that is one of the few ways that can be communicated and is also universally understandable. There's a lot of different ways how to do it and how to implement it. But I think that is a way that politicians can utilize together with the industry and together with citizen, like with uh, citizens, grassroots uh, organizations to maybe bring the message across. I was about to say earlier, the politics, they will never drive change as long as it doesn't come from beneath, right? It's, they will always go for the, the least embarrassing solution or the least painful solution. So I think, yes. I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, their, their interest is to get re-elected. If they, if they make proposals that go against what the population wants, they essentially shoot themselves a bullet in the foot. On the other hand, is I had maybe two questions, but I think I'll start with one, which is a bit more controversial and perhaps uh, difficult to answer. But putting aside the economic interest, do you think that tackling climate change and having a, demo- a fully-fledged democracy are two conflicting concepts? That is a very, I, I would say, like a very intriguing, I would even almost almost provocative question because as soon as you go down that road and you you basically start questioning democracy as such you you always have pushback and you you have what what I do not think is that there's some who argue that that like yeah like systems like China or like Russia or so are more suited in order to implement rapid change because you have you can have a much more top down governance approach Whereas, like, yeah, if it's if it's if it's a democracy, a full or fully fledged democracy, there's it, it usually is like yeah, bottom up, and if it comes from like yeah, from from it transpires from the general population, then you need to convince the general population that it is in their best interest to 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 go down a more or like yeah, promote more sustainability. The thing is, right now, uh, what 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 we see is. 
there's always these stopgap measures, also from the population. So we do not really want to prepare unless something happens. So a, a good example is that is very recent is, for example, the floods in, in, in Western Europe, like uh, Belgium, but, but especially Germany, uh, where, where a lot, there was a lot of destruction and even, even fatalities. And a lot of the things around like, uh, like uh, uh, intensive rainfall patterns that, that intensified over the last years, uh, which was already things that were described in a lot of climate reports and also in certain climate scenarios, it, it's, it's always hard to convince someone to prepare for something that has not happened in the past and where no one can really say if it exactly, in what location will it exactly happen. And if you were to go to tell someone, you we now need to, like, yeah, for example, expand riverbeds again to their natural, uh, their natural, like, yeah, like uh, states because they are better suited for like yeah flash floods because with all the with all the like yeah like uh, uh, construction around rivers like yeah there's significant flood risks, but if you would tell people like yeah that would mean you would have to move somewhere else where it's safer, there will be pushback and people would say like yeah. But there, there has never been such a thing, and why, why, why should we do that? And to communicate that, it just illustrates the the, the dilemma of of where we are in. So now, even with with Corona, like yeah, where people say, where people basically go against, like, oh, do we need to go into a lockdown again because of Delta of the Delta variant? Do we need to restart that again? And you, you have like this this disaster fatigue to some extent, where people are just becoming so accustomed. To to like yeah like news around disaster, and and even if it if it hits very close, so even even within Germany because it was contained to a certain area in Germany, of course you have solidarity. But after two weeks or after three weeks, that is something that people who live in those regions say is people move on again, and so it's very hard to maintain interest that goes beyond just the purely short term local context, and. That is something very hard to 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 implement. So the thing is, how do you mobilize like a general like yeah, drive behind that in the population? And there, I would say, we probably need to come to like a balance between what governments should do in terms of and, and there's this term climate emergency. And usually with climate emergency, usually if we're like in a state of war or if we're in a state of like a pandemic, there's emergency powers attached to that. And we saw that with the lockdown. We saw that with certain like yeah, curfews that the government has quite far reaching power to limit life, even in democracies. And there was a lot of pushback and some of it very justified, but others, of course, very necessary from a public health point of view. So. And and some have said, some have used the term, it might be a bit martialistic or like a very, very militaristic, but there's a war on climate. And if we acknowledge that we're not necessarily in a war, but in a fight against global warming, then also that means if it, if it's in the interest of the public, but if the public sometimes says, I don't want to go along, or a, a part of the public says, I don't want to go along. I think COVID has sometimes shown that in the interest of 
the entire population. Sometimes you need to take decisions that are not necessarily popular with the entire population. Whether or not that is the right way, I do not know. I cannot really say. As, as well as if I was a politician in COVID times and I would need to implement certain policies that are very unpopular with a significant minority, I, I always like yeah, I always end up that that some some part of the population will feel disconnected, but at some point, I, I need to go with what what I feel is right. And in a democracy, since we do elect our leaders, at some point we also need to allow them to listen to experts, and in this case, for example, those who worked on the IPC report, and help them guide and provide guidance in terms of what are uh, sensible policies that need to be taken that might not be where not everyone is on board, for example, uh, phasing out certain light bulbs where some people like, yeah, were yeah, vigorously against, but it might be the right move. But um, to close on a on a positive note, um, there's one more thing I wanted to quickly ask is, is there any, um, I know you're still involved in Luxembourg, you're doing, um, you're doing a lot of things, uh, you know, supporting the government and, and some institutions that are based in Luxembourg. What are the key highlights that you can you can talk about, like positive things that people or the listeners based in Luxembourg can be looking forward to? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, I'm I'm very actively involved uh, with with uh, uh, a major financial institution in in Luxembourg, and I think you you had uh, in your in your in your podcast once was uh, uh, is where I think you had the CEO uh, Francois Thomas uh, on your program. So and 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 that is something that I've been pursuing for quite a while and. To their credit, in the background, so like not not really doing a lot of advertisement around it, because we first wanted to create the basics, like the the fundamentals around the foundations of how can we properly assess, measure, and analyze ESG, so that we can uh, not that we do not do the mistake of doing greenwashing by just announcing something that that appears a little bit of green, but does not really have a material impact in the large, uh, in the, the broader picture, and. The thing is, that has been something that I've been involved in. And in the beginning, I, I want to say, like, yeah, it was not always smooth sailing from a point of view, because as I said, you have an industry, the finance sector, which is also in a transition of its own, where previously sustainability and environment or so, they, they, they were present to some extent, but not to this extent. And that has both to do with, with shifting consumer preferences, but also from a regulatory point of view, there's a lot of pressure from the EU side, like with new regulations. Uh, one very common one is the EU taxonomy, which describes what activities can be considered green in order to avoid greenwashing, or for example, the sustainable finance disclosure regulations, where financial institutions now need to disclose uh, to what extent do their products or their services that they offer actually uh, provide sustainability additionality. Like what what is the added value that they provide? It's, it, it's not enough to just make claims. So in that transition, it's, it's, there's always like, yeah, those who have been with, with, with financial institutions for a long time, where you also need to do a lot of like, yeah, discussions internally to, to, to bring them on board. But to their credit, I have to say that there was, there was an open debate. I'm not saying that everything that me as a scientist, I said, has been like, yeah, implemented the way I, 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 I proposed it. But one thing that, that we did recently is, for example, create a scientific advisory board 
So we, we took scientists from, from both based in Luxembourg or Luxembourgish citizens that, that are really have an immense level of expertise. And, and I really mean technical expertise from sustainability to, to water experts to, to climate experts who work with really like the leading institutions and also from with Luxembourg institutions like the university or the Luxembourg Institute of uh, Science and Technology. And we, we really get it leading experts who now will inform the organization on sustainability issues. That does not mean, again, it's an advisory board. We will provide advice. That does not mean that everything will change from one day to another. But what it does mean is that now science at least has for the first time a permanent seat at the table like that we can voice and that we can voice with significant leverage, like significant expertise, how does the finance sector need to consider and integrate science like the IPCC report? What do we need to do with that data and how can we sensibly integrate it? Well, on those very positive notes, it's, uh, as always, it's, it's been a pleasure to, uh, to have you on the show. Looking forward to speaking to you uh, in the very near future. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening to the Lux Unplugged podcast. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, please don't forget to visit our website, luxunplugged.com. And see you next time. Mm-hmm.